We are wrapping up a three-week series on money. And so that person that offered to buy you lunch today probably didn't tell you that. Because you were like, well, I'm, uh, I got something better to do with my time today, right? Um, but we are talking about money. And, and here's the thing. The reason why I even have to make that joke, the reason I even have to say you know, these things on the front end about money is because we all come to the table with some assumptions about money. Um, and, and to be completely honest, most of us in this room feel like God's pretty unreasonable uh, at times. Uh, we've probably felt that sense of God's unreasonable with what he tells us we should do with money. Uh, and it's not just money that we feel like God's unreasonable with uh, or about. Uh, we feel like there's things that we read in the Bible and we're like, okay, God, that, that's great and all, but you can't be serious, right? I mean, if you read the Bible for what it really says, there's just moments you're reading it and you're like, okay, that, that's, that's cool and all, but that can't be for real. Like, you really can't be asking me to do that, right? And I get this because as a parent, this happens to me all the time. Because as, as a parent, I say things to my kids, and they're like, for real, Dad? Like, come on. Like, you can't mean that. That's like, why would I do that, right? And so there's this unreasonable conversation going on with my kids all the time. And what's funny about it is the things that I'm telling my kids now that are unreasonable to them, uh, I can kind of hear back, my, I play back in my brain the things my parents said to me that were unreasonable. And now it's like I'm just repeating them, you know, you know what I'm saying? Some of you parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. And, and if, you, if you kind of track with me here, I mean, it, the Bible says God's our heavenly father. And there's things that he says to us that don't make sense to us. But in the whole scheme of things, like we have to trust he's wise and he knows what's right and what's good. But I think there's a deeper issue in this, this assumption about money because all of us at some point, maybe still today, have the assumption that number one, uh, that money, that my money is my money. Right? That's one of the assumptions we come to the table with, is my money is my money. Uh, the second assumption that a lot of us make is that God wants my money. Okay? That God wants my money and that he's out to get my money from me. Okay? And then the third assumption that a lot of times we will make about money is that I have more to lose than to gain when it comes to giving money. And specifically giving money to, to God. And, and, the, and again, there's some tension because if, if we're honest in the room today, you guys have probably seen in your lifetime some spiritual leader misuse or abuse money, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but all of us could probably go, yep, I see that. That's how that, that I see what they do. And, and so when you, you think about these assumptions, you think about, well, if I give my money to the church, uh, if I give money to, to God uh, through obviously giving it to the church, they're going to misuse it. They're going to abuse it. So it's probably better if I just hold on to it, right? I mean, let's just be honest. There's, there's part of that, that way of thinking out there. Um, and, and I'm not here this morning to, to, to try to act like that there's not a problem in the church with money because the church many times has adopted the culture's view of things rather than speaking into the culture or being counterculture. And so sometimes churches take money and they use it in unhealthy un, uh, ways. They use it in ways that dishonor God. And I think God is in heaven going, that's not what I gave that to you for. And I even think that church leaders, like myself, this is why I take this very serious. It's why we have a plurality of elders who make decisions about money and how we budget it. That's why they, those guys set my salary. That's why I don't have access to the bank account because I want my heart to be disconnected from this issue of money. It's so easy to get sucked into. But I think one day all of us church leaders are gonna stand before God and have to give an account with what we did with what he gave us. That's a scary thought for me in some ways. And I, and I live with that reality. But not every church leader feels that way. And so maybe you've seen some of that and you've seen abuse. And so today you come with a heart of like, oh man, not talking about money again. Come on, guys. I know what you do with that money. 
You know, you guys, man, you pad your pockets with that money, all right? Well, here's the deal. Regardless of where you are today, the reason we struggle with money is because we don't have God's perspective on it. The reason that we, the reason I struggle with money a lot of times in my life, because I don't see it through God's lens. I don't see it the way that God sees it. I see it the way that Nick sees it. I see it the way that I want to see it and the way that I want, I think God sees it. I, I, I basically project that ideology onto God. So to help us, we're going to look at one of the most confusing, misunderstood parables in the New Testament. Because that will clear things up, right? So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Luke chapter 16. Scripture is going to be on the screen for you. But I encourage you to read it for yourself. If you need a Bible, there's actually some Bibles under the the seats there. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take it as a gift from us. But Luke chapter 16 is on the heels of Jesus just giving three parables explaining what God really cares about. And actually Harley, last week, um, shared the, the story of the prodigal son and closing. And that's actually the last parable in Luke chapter 15, right? But here's the deal. In Luke chapter 16, we get this odd, unusual parable. And if you're like me and you just read it for face value, the whole time you're scratching your head going, this can't be right. Like, Jesus can't be saying what he is saying here, okay? So just follow with me. Let's read through it. And then we're going to have to come back and unpack it together. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said, this being Jesus, he also said to the disciples... There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and he asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. In the words of Donald Trump, you're fired. Then the manager said to himself, What should I do? Since my manager is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough, I love this part, I'm not strong enough to dig, because I've been, you know, pushing money around, all of a sudden I've got to be thinking about, I've got to use my back. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too proud or too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Okay, take your invoice, sit down quickly, and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Okay, take your invoice and write down 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. What? Did you just read that? It looks like he just stole this master's money. And then the master says, I'm going to praise you because you acted astutely. Or shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, this is going to get even weirder. Make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, Who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. And notice this end piece here. 
The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. All right, so now I'm going to tap off and ask Matt to come and explain that whole parable to you guys. Okay, you ready? Come on, Matt. Okay. Now, here's the deal. This is kind of whack. I mean, when you read the Bible, you come to it. Sometimes we just go, you know, this is spiritual writing. I'm just not going to get it. And we just kind of move on. But, I mean, you read some of these verses, and it's, it's a little odd. It's a little strange. And, and there are a lot of people who've misused this passage. They've misunderstood this passage. But I want to kind of give us an insight into this passage that I think will help. But before we get to the deeper meaning of the passage, let's just look at the surface level of the first eight verses and, and say, do you guys know that God's word is practical? God's word is practical. God gives us very tangible, tactile, practical things we can apply to our lives that will make our lives better if we just apply them. Whether you're a believer or not, if you apply these things, okay, what I'm about to tell you, you can apply these things to your life and your life will get better in terms of money management, okay? Because God's word is practical, his truth is good. So what are the things we see? Well, first let's understand what's going on contextually. Here's this guy who is a manager of a master's wealth. Um, this, it was very common during that day for someone who was wealthy to have an estate. They would have uh, sort of a compound and everyone who worked for them would live in this compound. And so they would usually hire someone who they trusted. I mean, even if you go back to the Old Testament, we see Joseph was this man uh, for Potiphar, who was a wealthy man, okay, in his time in Egypt. And, and here's the idea is that this, this guy would manage all the money, the resources for the wealthy guy. So the wealthy guy could just go play golf and hang out with his friends while this manager takes care of all the business, right? And so here they are, uh, this, money's got, this money manager's doing his thing, and somebody says to the master, hey, look, your money manager over there, he's not a good manager. He is not doing a good job. You need to, you need to have a little talk with him. In fact, I, I, I think you need to get rid of him. I don't think he is doing a good job. So what does the guy do? Well, the, the master goes, and he meets with the, the manager, and he calls him to account. And he says to him, hey, I hear things aren't going well, and I want you to close out these accounts. You're fired. We're moving on here. Now, again, remember, this is a story that Jesus told. This isn't a true story that was recorded. This is a story Jesus told, and he's making a point here. So the, the manager, from this point forward, you start to notice, this manager, he sees the writing on the wall, he understands what's about to happen, and he develops a plan, and then he, he implements his plan. And we start to see this un, unfold here in the passage. So three takeaways from this shrewd manager, which means sensible, means wise, means he's a, a good steward, okay, he, he gets this, he's, he, and, and why the master praises him. First is this, he looks ahead. The shrewd manager looks ahead. How many people in America, in our lives, how many of us in this room live in the moment with our money, never taking time to really think down the road? Now, this is probably more of an epidemic in my generation than some of the generations that have gone before. But I know statistics that show that as the baby boomer generation gets to retirement age and moves into that stage, that um, there's a lot of concerns about the credit card debt and about who's going to actually own all that when it all comes down the pipe. Because a lot of people live in the moment. They buy when it feels good. They make impulse decisions with their money. And then they have to live with the long-term consequences. You ever been there? I mean, let's be honest, 
It's really easy to get sucked in because we have such a, a, a culture of buy now and, and here's all these advertising things. And, you know, it, they're good at it. As I said week one, they're really good at advertising to us and saying we need something. It's not just a luxury that, you know, some people get. It's something we need. It's, it's a requirement to our life to our livelihood, and we get sucked in, and we make impulse buys. But notice this guy here, he, he sees ahead. He looks ahead. He sees what's going to happen, and he, he thinks about that. If you want to be a good manager of money, you've got to think ahead. You can't live in the moment. My wife and I, practically speaking, when we buy something um, uh, that's big, it's a big purchase, uh, we always say we're going to go home and sleep on it and pray about it before we just pull the trigger and buy it. Because inevitably what we've learned is if we just pull the trigger in the moment, we have that buyer's remorse. I know none of y'all have ever had that, right? None of y'all have ever felt that way after you bought something. But we have. And so one of the ways we try to protect ourselves is we're going to go home and pray about it. You know, car, house, any of those things, we're going to we're think about it, we're pray about it. And we have this constant <laughs> conversation too about things like when there are really good deals. And it's like, well, if we don't buy it right now, it's not going to be here. And I'm like, look, if God wants us to have it, it'll be there. Okay, it'll be there. But you have to not just live in the moment, you've got to think ahead. Second thing that this shrewd manager does, practically speaking, is that he not only thinks ahead, but he actually makes a plan. He makes a plan. And if you want to see your money be more effectively used in your life, you've got to have a plan. Let's get real practical. You've got to have a budget. A budget is a plan. It's a plan of how you're going to spend your money. In fact, a budget is when you tell your money where it's going to go before it just goes. Because it does just sneak away from you, doesn't it? And you look up and all of a sudden you're like, where'd the money go? Oh, wait, how many times did I go to Starbucks this month? Um, how many times did we hit the Sonic drinks? You know, it's like, so look, I, I know I'm stepping on some toes there, but here's the thing. We, we all have things in our life that we spend money on and we wake up and kind of realize, whoa, we just spent a whole lot of money on something we, because we didn't have a plan. We didn't think through what was going to be allocated. Practically speaking for Jada and I, um, and we aren't 100% on this uh, every time, but we try to use cash for what we spend on our m- monthly expenses. We, take, we pay the bills, you know, online because we don't have to pay for checks, and we do all that stuff and pay a lot of those that are auto-draft kind of deals, but then we use cash. And when you use cash, guess what? You feel it when it comes out of your hand, don't you? I mean, when it, you know, Dave Ramsey, some of you guys know Dave Ramsey. He's really impacted us personally in how we manage our finances. And, uh, and he talks a lot about the, the psychology of how it works when you've got plastic versus that green money coming out of your hand. And you feel the weight of that when you, you see that envelope and your cash envelope's going down. But when you just slide that plastic, slide that plastic. That's why, you know, even if you notice toy companies, have, it cahoots with these credit companies and they got these little games for kids where they're like two years old and they're little sli- swiping their little card, you know? And then now you got these phones, you just walk up and just, you know? Check it out. Pay, pay with your phone. Here's, here's what I'm saying. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a plan. This manager had a plan. He says, I'm going to, verse 4, I know what I'll do when I'm removed from management. People will welcome me into their homes. He's got a plan. But here's the third thing he does, and this is a big kicker for us, okay? He implements the plan. Many of you have thought about it. You've thought ahead. Many of you have even put a plan on paper or You've written something down or put it on your computer. But then the question is, have you implemented it? Um, you know, my kids, one thing about being a dad is you notice, if you really kind of back off a little bit and observe, that you're really saying the same thing 800 million times to your kids. Like, 
Over and over and over and over, I'm saying, stop doing that. Start doing this, right? Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Stop doing And so I know that it's not actually a knowledge issue for my kids. It's a, an obedience. It's an, impl- it's an application issue. And the same goes for us as adults, right? We all know that there's, we should do something different with our money, but we don't do anything different. And we have to implement it. This is an interesting stat for you. So maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're not. But if you've been to Europe, Europeans on average save about 12.5% of their wealth every year. Save about 12.5%. Japanese, I don't know if anybody's from Japan in here this morning. I know some Japanese folks and have some friends in Japan. And uh, they save about 25% of their income every year. Anybody want to take a stab at what Americans save every year? Negative 1%. Negative 1%. So in America, we spend more than we bring in. That's our, our track record. Bottom line is this, is that we know what we should be doing. We know we don't have enough money. We know there's too much month at the end of the money. But we don't actually implement the plan. Some of us need some accountability in that. Some of us need to get into a relationship with somebody who's older and wiser and a good manager of money and can help us sit down and make a plan and then hold us accountable to, to implementing that plan. Listen, it costs a lot of money to live. It does. In the United States, it costs a lot of money. And I want you to know that if you don't make a plan and you don't implement that plan, you're going to find yourself struggling. You're going to find yourself overwhelmed with debt. You're going to find yourself overwhelmed with just the, the everyday expenses of life just to meet ends meet. Can I just tell you, as a dad of six kids, we buy a lot of food. We do. And my wife and I have this conversation like, it really can't cost that much to feed them, does it? Yeah, it does. It costs a lot of money. We have to have a plan. We have to say, look, we're going to prioritize feeding our kids. Everything else is going to have to take second place. They're going to get nourished, okay? And then whatever else we can do, that that happens, all right? So anyway, it, it just cracks me up how many times in our lives we have heard good teaching, sound teaching, and we've put it down on paper, and then we never implemented it. And then we're asking, well, what's the problem? Why aren't we getting getting any better? Because we haven't changed our behavior. We haven't changed our habits. We haven't actually put it into practice, okay? So notice what this this manager does. He he goes through this whole scenario, and he decides he's going to write off the debt of these guys. And we don't know all the reasons for why he did this, but we do know that the master praises him, which gives us a little bit of clue. And I'm going to tell you what I think he's doing here. Um, There's kind of a combination of three things. One, the master could have been charging more than what was reasonable. And so here's this manager kind of lowering it down to what he should have charged. He's also, it could be that the master was... um, including interest, and it was at a high rate, and if you, because he's talking about a Jewish man, uh, the Bible frowns on that. The Old Testament frowns on interest being added to loans, and so when the manager lowers the interest to, to make it back to where it should be, uh, the master can't speak up and say, hey, you can't do that, because why? Because then the master looks bad, because he's the one charging the interest, uh, and he shouldn't have been doing that. But the third option is actually that the manager was getting a commission, which would have been very typical, getting commission off of these loans. And he's saying, I'm going to give up my commission. I'm going to sacrifice now so that when I am no longer here and, and I need a place of employment, you'll remember me. He's pretty smart, isn't he? Pretty shrewd, pretty wise, okay? And so the manager, or the, the master... He applauds him. But here's what's interesting. Jesus weighs in on this. It's not just the master who applauds the servant. It's actually Jesus. And notice in verse, when you, when you go back to verse uh, 
8, the end of verse 8, it says, For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. He's saying that people who work in a secular environment and know how to manage money that way, that they are more, they are wiser, they are more shrewd uh, in, in their understanding and management of money than people who are following God, than people of the light. Why would he say that? Weren't these guys managing their money like everybody else in the same kind of position? Actually, he's pointing to something that's much deeper. And remember what I said a while ago. The reason we struggle with money is because we don't have God's perspective. Let me give you God's perspective according to this parable. Okay? First thing that we notice here. We are managers, not owners. We are managers, not owners. Now, this changes a lot of things for us. I mean, if you've ever had to manage someone else's stuff, you treat it differently than your own, okay? Um, Everything that we think we own, according to the Bible, it's on loan. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and anticipate that there's some of you in the room thinking, well, God didn't come down here and work my job, right? God didn't put in those hours at the office, God didn't come in down here and use his back and, and you know, and, and do, do all these things so that I could have this house and have this car and have these clothes. God didn't do that. Where, where's God in that? My question to myself and to you is, well, where'd you get that back? Where'd you get that brain? Where'd you get that ability to reason and to think through things so that you could earn money? Who gave you that creativity? Who gave you those hands? God did. You see, we we believe God has given us everything, and he owns everything. Psalm 50 this morning, as I was reading through, reminded me, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We're managers of God's stuff. Now, how how many of you guys would would keep banking with a bank that you went to, and and you said, hey, look, I want to withdraw some of my money. And they said, no, you came in this week already. You You can't have any of your money. How many of you guys would keep banking with them? I, I don't think so. You know, because it's our money, they're just holding it for us. That's the way we should view what God has given us. It's God's stuff, and he just allows us to use us. Not only that, but let's think about this for a second. It's yours temporarily. Like, it's, gonna, it's just going right through your fingers. Somebody eventually is going to be sleeping in your bed, driving your car, using your stuff. It could be kids. It could be somebody else you sell it to. But all the stuff that we have is eventually going on to somebody else. It's temporary, isn't it? And so we understand that we are managers we are the employer, our employee, he is the employer, all right? And we need to know in our, our lives that at the, at the end of the day, just as in this parable, we're going to give account for what we did with God's stuff. Call it this, it's an eternal audit. God's, we're going to stand before God and he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? We just got through tax season. Nobody wants to get that letter in the mail. We want to audit you, Right? God, it says in his word that we're going to give an account to the master what we did with what he gave us. And it changes everything when we understand that we are not the owners. We are the managers. The second thing that this parable reminds us and that Jesus says to us very specifically, he says it in verse 9. And it's a strange verse, but I think it's huge. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Anybody else think that's odd? Jesus is saying, use money to make friends? Buy friends. Don't we tell our kids you can't buy friends? 
Can we tell, like, wise people, like, you can't buy friends? What is Jesus saying? What is he trying to point to? Well, actually, he's saying we should use our money for the things that last because money is a tool. Money is a temporary tool that we have access to. Our possessions are really not our possessions, first off. They're God's possessions. But the possessions that we have stewardship of, we're to use and leverage for the long term, for the long haul. Not just money that we can accumulate into a bank account, but actually money that can help us serve people that will result in relationships that will last when this life is over. So this is what it looks like, practically. There's a day coming when Nick is going to go and be with Jesus. Either Jesus is going to return, or he's going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to expire. Okay, my, my, my lungs are going to stop filling with air, my heart's going to stop beating, and I'm going to go spend, be with Jesus. And in that moment, I'm going to be in heaven, I'm going to walk around, and I'm going to bump into some people. I'm going to bump into a guy, and he's going to say, hi, Nick. I'm going to say, who are you? He's going to say, I'm a man who lived in Indonesia. And because you and your family supported the work that we were doing in Indonesia, another missionary doing in Indonesia, I heard about Jesus. I heard about the gospel. And I'm here today because of you. I'm kind of like, what? Like, that little $20 I was sending a month to support that missionary helped you get here? Yeah. I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to bump into somebody else, and they're going to say, hey, how's it going, Nick? I'm going to be like, who are you? They're going to be like, you remember when you gave to support that local ministry called ADRN, and they were helping with the floods? And you remember when those people came and helped us clean out our house, and they shared the gospel? I came to faith in Christ, and I'm here today because you supported the work there. Like, wow, really? That little bitty gift that I gave of money? You see, here's the thing. I, I don't believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to go, man, I wish I had saved more money and spent more money on myself. Because that was so short. I mean, this life happened so fast. I mean, we, we should have been, been living large. Now my kids are down there blowing it. I don't think that that's going to be the conversation. Here's what I think the conversation is going to be. Why didn't we give more to help more people get here? Because money's a tool a tool it's here and it's gone guys God says money is not going to satisfy it's not going to meet our needs but here's the beautiful thing money has the potential to do something that's going to last forever it will not last forever but it has the potential to do something that will last forever another way to say it for those of you that just need a real tactile illustration money's a lot like manure you're like what did you just say that? You spread it around and things grow. You pile it up and it stinks. Okay? <laughs> Some of you are going to be like, <laughs> you wake up in the middle of the night, manure, what? <laughs> but truthfully, money has the potential to do great things. We can feed the poor. We can invest in a local ministry. I want you to know that when you give money to this church even, and I'm not, just know this, I'm not standing up here giving you a ploy for why you should give money to Point Community Churches more. That's not the point of the sermon. But when you give money to places like Point or some sort of ministry, and you are helping to support the work that's impacting lives for eternity, like it's an invitation to participate in God's grand mission. And it's an honor. And in the end, we are going to be thankful that we did. 
And every time I open my home for, to do hospitality, which my wife and I, my wife is amazing at opening our home and welcoming people in, but it costs a lot of money. And there's a tension in me. It's like, okay, here we go again. Okay, Lord, we're going to feed these people good. And I'm not going to be sad. You know, it's, it's, listen, and I connect it to the bigger picture of what God is doing. I realize, man, I wish we could spend more. I wish we could host more people in our home. God, you gave us this home so that people could come and know you and experience you and know your love in a practical way so that they would know that the church isn't a bunch of stingy people who are so stuck on themselves, but they are giving and serving and loving and investing in the lives of others. And a practical way we can do that is just by opening up our homes and saying, God, my home is your home. Here's another cool thing about this, when you understand it's a tool and it's not our tool. Think about this. We need to practice. God, this car is your car. God, this house is your house. When something breaks, you say, God, your car broke. (laughs) When your kid needs braces, you say, God, your kid needs braces. No, practically speaking, let's just talk. I mean, think about it. When we understand it's all God's and God's got this, we don't have to stress out and be anxious and fearful and worried all the time about money. We understand he's got it. And he's going to take care of us. And he's going to give us what we need. But this really leads to the next piece of this conversation. And that is this. Stewardship of our stuff is a test. Stewardship of our stuff is a test. What do you mean it's a test? Listen, if you want to know what matters most to you, follow your money. Go look at your bank statement. Look at where you spend your money. Obviously, my kids' livelihood is important to us because we spend a lot of money on food, as I said a while ago. <laughs> but you follow your money, where you give your money, how you invest your money, where you, where you spend your money. That will tell you a lot about what matters, where you find security, where you find significance. Money shows you, your calendar and your bank account. But in our lives, we understand that spiritual uh, test, the spiritual test for our lives is finances. What we do with our finances. It's one of God's favorite tools to unveil to us what really matters. And know this, that when we don't manage our finances, when we don't manage it in such a way and steward it well, it shows that we are, have an unmanaged life. And, and an unmanaged life reveals that we haven't listened to God and we haven't put into practice what he said and we haven't acted in wisdom. And if we can't, as according to this passage, I think you've got to read this again. If we can't manage wealth well, then why would God trust us with even more important things? We're going to come back to that in a sec. Because here's what it says in verse 10. Whoever is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you've not been faithful to the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? Listen. God, he knows that what you do with your money reveals, again, what what you think about him and what you think about his work, what you think about your life and your purpose. And you can see that in how you steward the resources that he's given you. And here's the cool thing. Faithfulness in little ways will allow you to have the opportunity to manage more. And now here's the thing. Some of you, when I said that, you're like, okay, I'm going to do this because then that means God's going to make my bank account bigger. But I want you to understand that that's not the point he's driving at here because he clarifies it in verse 12. And he says, 
that those of you who can be trusted with the things of God here and now, the things that belong to me, will be entrusted with many more things in the life to come. Now, I don't know about you. We don't have enough time to unpack that. But what he is saying in that moment is that that there is going to be an opportunity to steward heavenly resources one day. And God wants, he is preparing us now to steward stuff then. I don't know what your idea of heaven is. I don't know if you think it's like we're going to sit on a cloud with a diaper and play a harp. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches us about heaven. What it does say to us is that we're going to have work to do. And we won't have the thorns and we won't have the hardship and the difficulties that work this side of heaven has. And we see that in the Bible, he's saying here that if we can't manage resources now, why could he trust us then? That's a crazy thought. Maybe that's a new thought for some of you in this room. So we have the opportunity to learn today how to manage God's stuff, to manage the resources. There is a direct connection between maturity and money. And not only that, but how we use money will determine how God blesses us. Now, let me just make sure that we get, we get clarity here. I'm not saying if you give money to Point Community Church, one, we're going to send you this gold eagle to put on your, your mantle, you know, like you, call, you see those deals on TV. Hey, send your money in and we'll send you a gold eagle. And, uh, and then you can you know, remind yourself how you've blessed this ministry. Okay, listen. We don't give to get God to give back to us. And we don't give so that we can get wealthy. We give because God has already given everything we have, everything we need. I said at the beginning that we struggle to have God's perspective. And I absolutely agree with that. We struggle to have God's perspective. But the question is, if God's perspective is that We are managers and not owners. And if God's perspective is that our treasure, our possessions are a tool, and if God's perspective is that all this stuff is a a test to see where our hearts really lie, what we really care about, what we really worship, if that's the, the, the case, then the question is, is how do we actually transition over there? How do we move from our perspective on money, where we're like clinging to it, to God's perspective? Listen, the only thing I know to do is to try to motivate your heart this morning, motivate my heart to remember that God is a giver and not a taker. And you're like, well, what does that mean? That doesn't really help me. That didn't move anything. Notice what he says at the very end of this passage. Verse 14 and 15. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing. They were making fun of Jesus. They're saying, he does not know what he's talking about. Who is this joker? And he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. That's a scary thought, right? No matter what we look like on the surface, God really sees to the heart of the matter. He sees what's going on below the surface. And he says, what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Another way to think about this is this. What God values is not what people value. So then that begs the question, what does God value? Let me tell you what he values this morning. He values you. You're like, well, how can you say that? Remember I said earlier, this comes on the heels of Luke chapter 15. And there's three parables in Luke chapter 15. The first one is a parable of a lost coin. A widow has 10 coins. She loses one. And what does she do? 
She goes to town, man. She turns that house upside down, sweep, 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 sweep. She is looking everywhere to find that one coin. She finds it, and what does she do? She throws a party. She celebrates. Pretty awesome, huh? You get to the next one, and it's the story of the 99 and the 1. This man has 100 sheep. One of them goes astray. What does he do? He leaves the 99, and he goes and pursues the 1. And then the next parable is the parable of the lost son. And in the story, it says that he has these two sons, and one of them is lost. And, and at the end of it, we see again what happens. The lost son comes back home, and Harley did a great job last week painting that picture for us, the father's heart. And here's this lost son, and he comes home, and what does the father do? He throws a party. Are you seeing a pattern? Because when Jesus was telling those parables, he was saying that when the lost are found, that there is a party in heaven, showing that God values people. And that connects back to what he just said earlier. Use your money to help people know God so that there will be even a bigger party in heaven. Use your money so that people will know Jesus. Are you with me? Because how cool is that, that my stuff, my beat-up suburban, my whatever, my, whatever it is, whatever we, however we look at stuff, all the stuff that we have is God's, and we get to use it to, to point people to life in Christ. And one day, we're going to get to heaven, and people, we're going to bump into people, and they're going to say, I'm here because of you, because you gave. You didn't hold it onto, you didn't hoard it. You didn't go spend it all eating hamburgers at Hop Daddy. I'm just talking about myself here, okay? You gave. You invested. God values you. God doesn't want something from you as much as he wants something for you. He wants you to have freedom from the financial slavery that you're in. He wants it for you. He wants it so badly that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to live and to die in your place. Because he loves you. And we get to point people to the fact that God loves them. Let's pray.